CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for being here for the Friday edition, the end of the week of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, Let's get right to the panel. Uh, we're going to talk about money in politics today. We're going to give you the latest on what's happening with Marjorie Taylor Greene and the effort to disqualify her from running for re-election. And uh, we'll look at this strange story about why suddenly automatic voter registrations plummeted dramatically. Some are suspicious. Uh, others say it was a glitch in a state website. We'll talk about that and a lot more <clears throat> Excuse me, with a great panel. Um, for those of you who keep score... When you listen to the show, um, Jim Galloway, who has been with us every Monday on the show, um, we've made a switch, and we're really glad Jim is going to start being with us. Jim, we're happy that you're going to be here on Fridays. Patricia Murphy, who had been doing Fridays, will be joining us every Monday. But Galloway, we appreciate having you here today as we talk about, at first, money in politics. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to a big surge in my popularity because I, now I've become the guy who ushers in the weekend rather than the work week. <laughs> An excellent point. Uh, professor Andrew Gillespie is with us. She, of course, is an Emory University political science professor and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at, on, uh, at Emory. Andra, any James Weldon Johnson programs coming up that we, our listeners might want to know about? We just wrapped up our final two events of the academic year. But look at our website. There might be some content change over the summer. But, uh, yeah, we're done with our programming for the school year. I guess that's right. You're getting set to uh, take summer break. Okay. Yeah. Um, Charles Bullock. Charles Bullock is with us, the Richard B. Russell Chair in Political Science at the University of Georgia. Uh, Chuck. You uh, told us right before the show went on, you're down to grading your last few term papers before summer break begins. Congratulations, Chuck. It's always a good feeling when you get to this point, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it is. Thanks for being here. And uh, Rick Dent is back with us, Vice President of Matrix Communications. And Rick really has become, over the last election cycles, a guy who monitors, keeps track of spending on political advertising, keeps track of new ads as they begin appearing. Rick, we're always glad to have you on when this subject comes up. You're down in New Orleans right now, so I really appreciate you're getting up a little early, central time, to be on the show. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, today I'm last and I'm least with this group. You've got me with the A-team today, so thank God because uh, people are going to need to carry me in this program. Well, well, Rick, uh, if that's your feeling, I hate to say I'm going to start with you. I want to talk a little bit about, I want to talk, let's talk about spending a little bit. Um, And and let's start by talking about uh, spending in the Republic, uh, in the gubernatorial campaign, both uh, the Republican and Democratic campaigns, um, uh, Purdue, Kemp, and of course, on the other side of the aisle, Stacey, Abrams. Um, just give us a summary, if you would, of how much money is being dumped into these campaigns at this point. Well, right now, uh, probably the uh, most important thing is the amount of money that Stacey Abrams is spending in light of the fact that she's not in a primary. She's outspending everybody right now, and that's a combination of Stacey and the Fair Fight group that is her organization. Uh, right now, she has put in about $11 million uh, on the air. Um, if you compare that with Kemp and the Republican governors, right now they're about at four. And even if you take into account what the Republicans plan to spend in the primary, it will still come up short of that $11 million mark uh, if they don't add anything. So the fact that she's spending that kind of money in a primary with no opposition uh, is very, very telling. 
Jim Galloway, uh, the, the old uh, 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 saying uh, in uh, politics is define yourself before your opponent can define you. People already know who Stacey Abrams is, but certainly once the Republican primary is over, she's going to be getting attacked on a daily basis. So uh, it makes sense that she's dumping money into getting out an, an, an ad campaign that puts her in a positive light, Jim. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems as if she's very much taking a, a, a page out of the Raphael Warnock playbook, uh, because if you recall back in uh, uh, back last year, uh, uh, you had a, uh, or at least in 2020, you had uh, Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins in the U.S. Senate race in that massive race going at, uh, after each other, hammer and tong, basically leaving Raphael Warnock alone. And what Warnock did was he he he, he turned out these wonderfully uh, a wonderfully uh, self-identifying uh, uh, commercials, uh, and and Abrams's uh, her her thirty-second spots are very much in that line. Uh, uh, the one that I've seen most recently uh, has her with a a white female independent where they're chatting and and and, and exchanging ideas. Uh, it's it's. Uh, it, it's a it's a very disarming uh, uh, spot. Andra, why don't we listen to the audio of that spot, and then I'll ask you and Chuck Bullock to weigh in on it. But but I think it's also important, since we're not seeing it, to point out that these two women, Abrams and the businesswoman, it's a very casual, informal, very warm and friendly setting. They really seem to like each other as people. At least that's certainly the impression the ad creates. Let's listen to the sound from it. When Stacy and I first met, we seemed like opposites. Laura talks to anyone. Stacy listens to everyone. Laura's an independent. Stacy's a Democrat. Laura's more Star Wars. Stacy's Star Trek. We don't always agree, but our differences, they're our superpower. We built a company together to finance other small businesses. And help them save and grow jobs. That's how we're going to grow Georgia's economy. That's why you ought to be governor. We can agree on that. <laughs> Andra, what do you think? Well, a lot of things. I mean, one, the familiarity is is uh, comes from the business relationship that they had. And so this is a way for Stacey Abrams to tout her business credentials to suggest that she's going to be a good steward of the state budget. Um, and also, I think it is a way, as Jim has alluded, of signaling to uh, suburban white voters, particularly college-educated white women who are probably the least Republican of the demographics in the state, that Stacey Abrams is somebody who is not threatening and somebody who they may want to consider if they don't like whoever the Republican nominee um, is. So, I mean, I think she's doing a lot to try to disarm voters. Um, and this also actually harkens back to an ad that actually came out, I think it was during the Super Bowl in 2019, right after she lost, where she was um, for Fair Fight, where she was actually in conversation with a white Republican woman and talking about ways that they could find common ground. So it seems very, very familiar to me. If there's one thing that I could add here, just in terms of what Rick was saying about spending and fundraising, it's important to point out that people are looking at Georgia as the exemplars of how black candidates can raise money in races. And that's typically mm. because people think that black candidates can't raise money. Um, and so they have actually proven to be somewhat exceptional in this race, but they're doing it because they're in really competitive races. And so the reasons why black candidates have, have typically encountered trouble raising money is that people think they don't need to raise it because they're in uncompetitive races. Um, there are structural issues that we think about in terms of where blacks are likely to give their discretionary income and blacks being less likely because they have less wealth to be able to donate directly to campaigns. But I think what Warnock and what uh, Abrams are showing is that uh, a highly qualified, competitive black candidate actually, you know, does what they need to do in order to be able to raise the money in order to be viable in a race. I think that's a really fascinating uh, uh, point. I'm glad you made it, Andre. Um, Chuck, weigh in on all this. Yeah, let me play off of uh, something that uh, Jim said, because I, I agree with everything Andre said. Uh, it seems to me that their Republicans have, have a learning curve here, and they're, they're moving up that learning curve. Now, yeah, back in 2020, uh, Dr. Warner got a pass during the Republican primary. But now these ads that we're seeing coming out of the Kemp camp, they begin often by attacking Abrams, and then they pivot very quickly to talking about positive things from, uh, from Kemp. So you know, she is not getting that pass that Warnock got. So uh, I think Republicans learned that by, by not attacking him early, 
uh, he was able to, to make up a lot of ground and to get well-known. Now, of course, this is an entirely different situation. And that, you know, certainly if you've been in Georgia for the last four years, you, you have a pretty good fix on who Stacey Abrams is and probably a you know, pretty good idea of whether or not you're going to vote for her or not. So a lot of her ads are going to be to kind of mobilize her supporters and make sure they actually get to the polls. Because what we know is the general pattern is that some midterm election like 2022 Republicans do a better job of getting their people back to turn out than Democrats do. So that's going to be a challenge for that entire Democratic ticket. Rick, is that the one commercial that Abrams is putting, the Abrams campaign has put most of their money into right now? Yeah, it, it is. It is. It's, it's, the, it's their focus. And, and again, and I didn't, everybody... I, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, uh, no, I didn't again, set up what that relationship is between those two women. Uh, yeah, it's it's that that business connection. Uh, it, it's interesting that what what Stacey Abrams is attempting to do right now is really talk to the middle because she's got mm-hmm. she doesn't have a primary. Um, the general is down the road, and she is talking to the middle right now. It's going to be interesting to see because based on what happened two years ago, nobody talked to the middle. I don't know if y'all remember that or not. Nobody talked to the middle two, year, two years ago, and that still may happen. But right now, she's got the luxury of both money and the ability to talk to the middle. Um, and we'll see if it works. You know, it's interesting you say that, Rick. Um, I got an email yesterday from a listener who didn't give me permission to use uh, his name on the air, so I won't. But, Jim, he said... I, I, he, he likes the show. He thinks we talk about issues in a way that are smart and interesting, which I'm glad about. But he went on and he said, it seems like all the conversations are about the extremes. Um, and nobody's talking about the people in the middle. There's a lot more of us than there are people in the extremes. That's exactly the point that Rick Dent is making right now, Jim, about the Abrams uh, ad. Right, right. And, and, and of course, you know, I mean, uh, the, the thing here is that you've got uh, in this Republican primary between uh, Purdue and Kemp and, and I, th- I believe, t- two or three other candidates, uh, they're, all, they're all hewing to the, the, to, to the extreme portion of their, their party. So, you know, so, yeah, you've got, uh, you've got a, a, a group out there that might be listening, that might be eager to hear something uh, directed at them. Um, let's talk about Purdue for a couple minutes, Chuck Bullock. We learned this morning that um, he's gotten a new infusion of cash, some $2 million. We know he's lagged far, far behind Kemp in fundraising, but now in the final, what, five weeks before the primary, $2 million, which comes from a group that's associated uh, with um, with uh, Donald Trump. It's brand, a group that Brandon Beach, the Republican uh, from Alpharetta, has um, um, been identified with a lot. Um, so here's a $2 million uh, uh, fill up for Purdue after uh, Trump himself wrote a check for $500,000 for the campaign. But, but Chuck, uh, Purdue still has a lot of ground to make up uh, to really get in the advertising game, right? Well, he does, yeah. We don't see much of him. We see far more of uh, Brian Kemp. And what Purdue's got to do, and he's he's reasonably well positioned to do that. And that is uh, pick up the support of those people who are deciding late. You know, what we know is that incumbents, yeah, they pretty much have their support locked down. If you like the incumbents, you know about that person, you know what you like about them. But the late deciders are the ones who break and usually by about two to one against the incumbent. So you know, I think one of the reasons we're seeing this huge amount being spent by Kemp is that yes, every poll shows him ahead by using about 10 points. But those polls also show that Kemp in the primary is not breaking 51% or 50%. If you can't get above a majority when you're the incumbent, you do have problems. And uh, so this $2 million plus the half million that, Kemp, that uh, Trump put in is going to help uh, Purdue get that word out. I think it's especially troubling. I think this is the first time that uh, Trump has tapped into that $100-plus million that he's got to share it with anybody. And so he is, yes. he is worried about his bet here, not, not going to pay off for him. And, and you know, the, um, the other important number that campaigns have to focus on is job performance number. 
And Kemp has the same problem. He's in the 40s. And it's really about common sense, Bill. That is, if only 42% of the people think you're doing a good job, why would 50% vote for you? Um, all right, let's listen to the Purdue. Let's listen to a Purdue ad, Andre. This is the new Purdue ad. It, uh, it by the way, uh, uh, Rick, is this an ad paid for by the Purdue campaign, or is this from an outside group? The the P- Purdue attacking Kemp. I got. I, I have to check on that. I can't remember. Okay, Andre, let's listen to it. Because to hear the new Purdue campaign, it's clear that Brian Kemp is responsible for every single thing that is wrong in the universe today. Let's listen to the audio of that TV spot. Illegals flooding our border. Skyrocketing gas prices. Crippling inflation. The brink of war. Folks, that all started right here when Brian Kemp sold us out and allowed radicals to steal the election. Kemp is just another establishment politician who fought Trump. Enough is enough. I'll make sure our elections are never stolen again. We'll eliminate the state income tax and stop the woke mob from indoctrinating our kids. It's time to fight back. Wow, Andra, lots to unpack there. Why don't you start us off? Well, so I, I saw a little bit of this ad. I was I was distracted, so I wasn't watching the whole time. And so if I recall, this is the ad where you see the jean jacket again. Right. So part of this is populism and part of this is anger. And so he's trying to tap into anger to mobilize Republican voters who are likely going to be uh, more right of center um, because it's a primary election. And that's going to be his strategy to try to get to 50 percent plus one. Um, and so, I mean, he hit every touch point. He is endorsing the big lie, which we already knew he was doing, right? And what he's hoping is that that riles up a certain segment of the Republican base enough that numerically he can make up the gap that's between him and Brian Kemp right now and then and then use that to, to, to be able to ultimately beat him, um, whether it's in the primary or in the primary runoff election. So, I mean, it seems very straightforward. I think that the big question is when you're misrepresenting certain types of things and then, you know, basically – saying that none of this would have happened, you know, if Donald Trump were president. Um, And that's Brian Kemp's fault because he didn't overturn an election that he couldn't overturn. I think that, you know, that's the normative problem here. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 I don't know that I've ever seen a 30 second spot that is so angry. Uh, You you know, it's just it is it is. uh, uh, And and I'm not sure that 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 it kind of coincides with uh, what we've got going in the in the general population here uh now maybe 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 you do have maybe you uh, maybe you still have that have that fervor among the 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 the, the, the hardcore trump loyalists but you know i mean we've seen we've seen trump rallies diminish, diminish in size we've seen them kind of diminish in, in enthusiasm and obviously, this is an effort to to stoke it, but you have to have something there to stoke. And I and I'm not entirely sure that that's there yet. No, Chuck. Yeah, Chuck. I think the point is the question is: Can you really lay all of these issues at the feet of Brian Kemp and expect voters to believe you? Um, you know, angry voters are looking for somebody to blame. So if you're okay. angry, yeah, this this does resonate with you. I'll tell you what's really interesting. My colleague who runs the uh, SPIA poll did a controlled experiment where he told half of those people whom he surveyed that Trump had endorsed uh, uh, Purdue and the other half he hadn't. And it only made two percentage points of difference. So uh, expecting to be able to simply say Trump endorsed me and this is going to get me elected. Yeah, that'll work if you are running as one of those unknown folks, say, for example, the person who was running down there for insurance commissioner, I mean, it, it added, I think, 40 points to him to know who Trump endorsed. But when you've already got a fix on who the two candidates are, uh, the Trump endorsement, turns out, is not that magical. And, and by, know, the way, Rick, Bill, I, and by the way, Bill, by the way, Bill, that is, that is, I, I looked it up. That is a Purdue ad. So that's coming directly from Thank him you. and not a pack. So, so let me ask you a question to follow up on what uh, Chuck just said, Rick, is um, – we haven't seen the first ads for David Perdue had almost no Purdue in them. They were Trump looking in the camera saying, this is my guy. Vote for him. Um, we haven't seen Trump come back. The question is, is that because Trump is hedging his bets? He's, he's said in a couple of interviews, maybe this guy can't win. 
Or is the Purdue campaign looking at it and saying, maybe we don't need to put Trump front and center right now? I know we don't have an answer to that definitively, but what's the speculation? You know, look, Trump is in a win-win situation because he's Donald Trump. If Purdue wins, Trump gets all the credit. If Purdue loses, he's going to crap all over David Purdue and say, say what a horrible candidate he was, what a horrible campaign that was. I had nothing to do with, with, with that disaster in Georgia. <laughs> the, the other thing we're seeing, though, in other states, that other Trump-endorsed candidates in the South are struggling as well. Um, so maybe... Maybe he's starting to fade a bit, but I got to tell you, when you look at the numbers in a Republican primary in the South, man, those voters love him. They just do. Yeah. 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 Andre? Well, I mean, I think that the big testable question here is uh, not whether or not people love Trump, but whether or not he actually has coattails. Um, and so like, mm-hmm. that's the thing that I, I've kind of always questioned, and I think it's something that we're going to continually have to test. So this is going to sound weird that I would bring this up as an analogy, but this actually reminds me of one of the things that I talked about in my first book on Cory Booker. So in 2006, when Booker runs uh, and actually wins uh, the mayoralty in Newark, he had pushed Sharp James, the incumbent mayor, out of the out of the race. And so there was a big scramble by the second candidate uh, who was going to oppose uh, Booker Ron Rice Sr. to get the endorsement of Sharp James. And so he was pining for it. He waited to get into the race until Sharp James was going to be out of it. There was all of this stuff that Rice tried to do. And when um, James uh, finally endorsed Rice, it was actually pretty tepid. Like it was one of those, like I wish viewers could see this. He kind of like, you know, it was, it was like he, he was very casual and was like, yeah, yeah, I endorse him. And it was, uh, uh, you know, it did, like it didn't do anything, right? It wasn't going to to stop the juggernaut here. And I think this is going to be a you know a closer race. It's not going to be a juggernaut race, but it was one of those things where we're going to question in the end why David Perdue would allow himself to be put up by Donald Trump for this particular race and subject himself to trying to kiss the ring and not necessarily getting all of the love and all of the endorsement. Um, that um, that one would have expected to happen. And so the fact that, that, that Trump is hedging his bets right now, that he's only giving him a half a million dollars. Like, I get, like, fundraising emails twice a day from Trump folks. Um, to, um, that, that, like, I think that, that that suggests something about what a fair-weather friend uh, the former president is. And so while I agree with, with Rick that he's likely going to come up with some revisionist history, we have to remember that Trump was the one that put David Perdue up to this because nobody in Perdue's position should really sort of strategically try to mount a campaign against an incumbent. Like that's not that's not something professional politicians do. Uh, by the way, Jim, uh, just as a side note here, in terms of really piling it on, the Kemp campaign piling it on David Perdue, we learned this morning in reading The Jolt that Brian Kemp is getting set to have an event with Sonny Purdue, David's cousin, uh, down uh, in, in South Georgia. And one of the stops is going to be at a little, uh, I guess it's a restaurant, where David Purdue uh, filmed one of the first ads he did for this campaign. Ouch, Jim, ouch. Yeah, yeah. Talk about triangulation there. Uh, this is this is this is where the chancellorship kind of pays off for Brian Kemp, uh, and uh, look, uh, we are not. We, we, there's nobody on this panel who's 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 altogether naive when it comes to to, to candidates doing what they need to do to get elected. You have to wonder what kind of conversation there was. Uh, between Brian Kemp and Sonny Perdue in the in in the lead up to his being named chancellor, maybe not directly, not maybe one on one, maybe through a couple of intermediaries. What are you willing to do? What can we? What no, can you no, make us do? No, no, Jim, I'm sorry. Uh, you are so smart about this stuff, but in this case, I think you got it wrong. The conversation we really wish we could hear is the one between David Perdue and Sonny Perdue. Sonny Perdue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we take a break, I want to do one more thing. Uh, Rick, you sent along to us. And by the way, I'm so grateful that you continue to feed us these commercials so we can keep up to speed on them. Um, The Kemp campaign released a minute 30 spot that I think they're breaking up into shorter 
spots. Right now it's online, but they can use it for TV in shorter forms. And it, uh, it praises Kemp for his handling of the pandemic. And we hear different business, see different business people talking about why they're grateful for Kemp. I'm just going to, uh, I just chose about 30 seconds or so of that longer spot, but you'll get the idea. Let's listen to it and then talk about it a little bit. Having Brian Kemp as governor was a godsend because he was not afraid to tackle the tough decisions. Dr. Fauci and the media was attacking Governor Kemp for letting us reopen and opening the state back up. And Governor Kemp listened to us, the people, and he was right. Brian Kemp, he took a lot of bullets for the people of Georgia. In my mind, Governor Kemp was the hero throughout COVID. He opened us up. He allowed our kids to go back to school. He allowed my husband to go back to work. He allowed us to start living our lives. Governor Kemp was listening to my family. He was listening to what we needed. Brian Kemp has courage. For him to step out and say, hey, we're going to do this, I think it took a lot of backbone. Rick, courage, backbone, um, a godsend. And in a strange way, Rick, in a, this sort of like in the Abrams case where she's painting the most positive image of herself that she can, in a way, this is an effort by Kemp, I think, to indemnify him against accusations that may come at him from Democrats for the many deaths that we had from COVID, the issues with schools, not knowing whether they can open or close. Um, it's a very positive spot, but attacks are certainly coming about the way he handled the pandemic. Look, I love this spot. I love this spot. And my Democratic friends are going to hate what I'm about to say. Early, early in, the, in the pandemic, no one knew how this thing was going to kind of end. He took a gamble. And guess what, folks? He won. And when you win the bet, you get to reach into the pot and pull all the money to yourself. He won, I believe, the COVID bet. And Democrats have lost that issue, I believe. And so I love this spot for Governor Kemp. But, but Jim, that doesn't answer the many people who lost loved ones in the state of Georgia who will say that Kemp kept the state open and didn't protect them. Uh, no, and 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 you can you can bet that Abrams is going to uh, is go, is going to be uh, wielding those statistics. Uh, a couple things on on this, and uh, I don't I. I I don't think it, it it was not in in the clip that you played, uh, Bill. But I think there's a there's a there's a line in that in that ninety seconds where where uh, uh, you have Kemp uh, defying Washington, which I th- which which I thought was 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 a wonderful way of of dissing Donald Trump without dissing Donald Trump, because if you remember right. Donald Trump. I mean uh, Brian Kemp wasn't wasn't just criticized in the media and by Democrats. Donald Trump said that he opened Georgia far too early, uh, and 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 so you have. Uh, I, I thought that was a, a very neat way to to bypass that criticism. Uh, Chuck and then Andre before we get to a break. Chuck, uh, is COVID going to be an issue in this campaign? And Kemp's handling of it work to his favor? Certainly, Kemp believes it is because in addition to this policy they had for Kemp, there is also an attack ad that the Kemp campaign is yes. running against. Uh, Stacey Abrams saying, well, if she'd been here uh, in governorship, it would have been an entirely different world. I certainly don't want to minimize in any sense the thousands of people who died and the families who lost them. But there are an awful lot more people who probably look at this and say, yeah, it was bad. But for my business, uh, we were better off by by opening up. And, uh, And again, especially if your own family didn't have any losses here. So yeah, I think Andre, uh, Rick, it's right that this is is a is a winner for for Kemp on this. So I mean, I, you know, I, I think that that Kemp, because we are now two years kind of removed from the onset of COVID, and because many people think COVID is over, I think that they do think that this is a win that we were back to normal and that we were unscathed. The other thing that uh, I think kind of confounds what's going on is that one of those ads, especially one that attacks. Uh, Abrams, they talk about how Georgia could have looked like New York or California. And the confounding part about New York and California is that if we look at the death statistics, so I'm looking at statistics.com right now, one, Georgia ranks 12th in terms of number of deaths, uh, which is not great. And I assume that Abrams is going to bring that up at some point, but um, New York is 13th. And so for all of the crackdown and lockdown efforts 
um, to some people, New York doesn't look better than Georgia. Um, you know, people would compare California and Florida all the time. And so because of that, right, uh, Kemp can now say, right, I ended up doing the right thing. The problem is, is that nobody knew what was the right thing. And at the time, it looked risky. And so we're not, so we're updating, but we're also not being retrospective and sort of remembering what it felt like in that particular moment where this did look very, very reckless. Um, all right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show um, and come back, and uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about on the other side. You're listening to Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, Andre Gillespie, Chuck Bullock, and Rick Dent join us uh, today. Um, we're going to move on from the uh, advertising campaigns and the money in the races right now. Um, if you're listening to us live at about 9.35 or so in the morning, um, I should say that um, the administrative judge is now beginning to hear um, the arguments that are being made as to whether uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene should be disqualified from uh, the ballot in Georgia because, according to plaintiffs, she was uh, aided and encouraged the uh, insurrection. Um, it's an interesting case because at this point, um, it is in the hands of an administrative judge who will hear arguments from both sides and testimony from Marjorie Taylor Greene, and he will make a referral to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, who will have the ultimate decision as to whether she should be on the ballot or not. Now, all of that is nevertheless controlled by a federal case that's still underway in which um, the question is whether or not the um, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment actually applies to uh, so-called insurrectionists uh, since uh, the Civil War. It's it's complicated, but I think you all understand it fairly well. Jim Galloway, I'm watching on C-SPAN right now. The uh, hearing has begun. Stephen Fowler for GPB is there. He says that this thing could go on till 3 or 4 this afternoon. And by the way, Matt Gates is apparently sitting with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim. All right. Uh, so we've got a real show going here. Listen, yeah. you know, there's I've got my doubts as to whether this is this is going to do what uh, what the 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 litigants uh, are proposing that it does. Number one is it it, it seems to me that that ins, ins, insurrection to uh, to say someone uh, participated in an insurrection or a rebellion, there has to be a finding of fact first, and I'm not sure this is a venue for finding fact. But if your if your if your your object is to get Marjorie Taylor Greene on a witness stand under oath to question her about what happened on January 6th and where she was and what she did, you know, that's that 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 may be a gain for 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 the for the litigants. And, and Chuck, that is one of the things that the organization, it's a national uh, liberal organization that has uh, challenged uh, uh, candidates in several states, in, in incumbents in several states, um, including Madison Cawthorn in uh, North Carolina. And they've said that. They want to get these people on the record, Chuck. Yeah, okay. So they get them on the record, and Marjorie Taylor Greene's going to raise several million more dollars off of this by being on the record yeah. and the publicity she's going to get from Bingo. Yeah, so uh, I, I, she probably would have paid for this. You know, so maybe they ought to charge her as, as part of an in-kind contribution for for this opportunity she has to broadcast her beliefs. And there are obviously a lot of people who believe you know, everything that she's likely to, to testify to today. So um, I, I guess it's maybe good to be built on the historical record here. But it's hard to imagine that she would be kept off the ballot. And if indeed you know, this case and she were kept off the ballot became a became a, a, a standard, then there are going to be an awful lot of people, beginning with Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, working your way on down, who would not be able to, to be on the ballot because, yeah, they did support, at least orally. They did not go participate. They did not kind of attack the Capitol. If she'd gone into the Capitol building, then I think you might have more of a case here. But by simply saying she agrees with it, I don't. I don't think you can keep her off the ballot with that, Andra. So um, I, I agree with Chuck that, like, if it's just she agreed uh, with 
you know, the rally or even agreed with storming the Capitol, that there probably isn't anything here. And I think that the timing of this matters. So I think they're trying to do this to say that they tried to prevent her um, and others that they're doing this to from being able to appear on the 2022 ballot. Um, from a substantive standpoint, I actually think that this is a little bit premature um, because we don't know sort of what the January 6th committee in Congress has found. We know that there are members of Congress, um, you know, who text you know, are now in the hands of the committee. Um, I have not heard yet that uh, Congresswoman Green's, you know, uh, texts um, or, or emails are part of, of this discovery. But if we knew that she, that like some of her written, written materials were actually a part of this investigation and she could be tied directly to it, I think that that actually makes the stronger case uh, for this. Um, I think ultimately, at the end of the day, the more effective way to repudiate people like Green, Gosar, Boebert, Cawthorn um, is to subject them to the vote and to have their voters vote them out of office. Because what this is actually giving is an opportunity for them to play the victim card. Um, and they will play the victim card and talk about how beleaguered and embattled they are, um, you know, by the woke left who's trying to go out to get them and not take responsibility for uh, you know, supporting and endorsing ideas that have actually, like, you know, shaken the very foundation of our democracy. So I'd rather this be handled electorally. Um, I think a legal route makes sense if it turns out that there's some actual, that there's an actual smoking gun that actually ties her directly to the planet. So, um, Rick, um, all of what's just been said by by uh, Jim, Chuck, and Andra certainly resonates with me. But yesterday on our show, we had a very extensive conversation about this, and there was a, a, a consensus among the panelists yesterday that, um, as unlikely as it is that she will be thrown off the ballot, that there is a matter of holding someone accountable for the way in which they've talked about insurrectionists, the way they've talked about the country, the way they've talked about stolen elections. Now, of course, Galloway makes a great point. There's got to be a finding of fact on Andra too. That may not be the case here. But holding her accountable for the way she has behaved and talked may be as important as whether she ends up being thrown off the ballot or not, just to get it in front of a court of law, is my point. Here's the problem. Number one, her voters and a large majority agree with her, number one. Mm. Number two, she is a tornado, and you don't give heat to a tornado. And like the panel has already pointed out, this is going to make her stronger. It's not going to help. If the idea is you're you going to hurt her, you're not hurting her at all. And then finally, you know, I guess I'm old school because – I don't like taking candidates out on technicalities and rules. Beat them on the issue at the ballot box. If you can't, you go away. If you win, you win. But this kind of stuff, like I said, you're playing with a tornado, and you got to make it stronger. Uh, Jim, you want to get a last word in on this? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it's just interesting. Uh, the, the one thing I would point out is that this is this is this uh, this whole hearing is a result of a, a single judge's uh, 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 decision, Amy Totenberg, uh, on the federal district, and you had a similar case uh, in North Carolina uh, about against Madison Cawthorn was that was dismissed by a single case. Uh, I haven't. You know, it's, it's, this is one of these things where you want to you want to you you want to see if this goes up the chain, and you want to see if this is going to be appealed uh, in, in 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 any fashion by uh, by parties in either state. Um, yeah, let me very quickly. Um, the federal judge in North Carolina said that Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, which was first uh, ratified to keep members of the Confederacy from running for federal office um, was, was in fact no longer valid because Congress had gone on and passed a measure that indemnified anyone moving forward after the Civil War from being, uh, uh, from, from uh, uh, having this, um, this section of the amendment apply to them. The federal judge in North Carolina said that was true. Amy Totenberg said, no, I disagree with him. In fact, this, this can be applied to insurrectionists or people who support insurrection moving forward. And that's, that's the legal uh, case. I, I think I've got that right, Chuck. 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if this would really go forward, then it's the kind of situation where you may have disagreements in two circuits. And that's the kind of case the Supreme Court would take, but that's a long way off and certainly not going to impact this year's ballot. Uh, one other quick thing, and then we're going to take a break and go on to other subjects. But, but Andra, it is fascinating that in the end, it is Brad Raffensperger, the man who showed some integrity in uh, in uh, standing up to Donald Trump on election fraud issues, uh, who is the one who's going to get the uh, a decision from the administrative judge and have to decide for himself whether she should be on the ballot or not. I don't like making predictions, but I'm going to make one here. He's not going to poke the bear on that one. So, like, if it has to come down to him, she's on the ballot. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Let's get to a, another break. Oh, let me point out that, as I said, we're we're live now at quarter to ten on a Friday morning. Um, Stephen Fowler is in the courtroom for GPB, so uh, you'll hear about the outcome, or as, as close to an outcome, uh, by later this afternoon on All Things Considered. So let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show and come back with more on today's show. Jim Galloway, in 2016, then-Secretary of State Brian Kemp instituted automatic voter registration. When you applied for a renewed driver's license, you could automatically register. You would be automatically registered to vote. It was wildly successful. It expanded the voting rolls in the state, I think, 7.7 million uh, people. Um, and and what we're now looking at, though, is that since 2020, there's been a dramatic drop-off uh, and uh, very few people are uh, getting automatically registered to vote. The AJC started looking into it. Mark Nisi was on top of this story. He came to the understanding, finally, after researching this pretty deeply, that what changed was the uh, DDS changed their website. It used to be that you would push a button to opt out of automatic registration. The new website requires that you opt in to be automatically registered. Is it a glitch? Is it an effort, as some Democrats concluded, uh, to uh, 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 another effort at voter suppression? We don't know for sure, but it's just another one of these stories that raises questions about how we conduct our elections. Right. And, and before we go any further, we need to say the DDS has switched it back again so that it is yes. now an opt out system. Yeah. Uh, and and it basically what happened, you had uh, uh, you had uh, uh, 80 percent of uh, of uh, those uh, getting new license, get, uh, getting a license in Georgia chose the chose to, to also register to vote that dropped down to 40 percent. I mean, it was a huge, it was, it was a cliff and, and, you know, the, the problem is, you know, the, the problem is that we are in a climate where, where, where I don't want to say malfeasance, but misfeasance where, where, where ineptitude or, or disregard, uh, uh, none of that. We don't believe in that anymore. We believe in plots. We believe in conspiracies. Uh, this is this is uh, it, it, it strikes me that you know it's it's going to be hard to prove to, to prove that there was that there was an active uh, active uh, uh, decision here. I, I, and and right now uh, you're not getting any answers out of DDS. Chuck, yeah, what you got here is a kind of a wonderful social science experiment. <laughs> what difference does it make whether you have to push the button to say opt in or opt out? And it turns out it's about 100% difference in terms of the registration rate that comes out of this. So, you know, going forward, if anybody, you know, I asked some of the others, it doesn't make a difference. Oh, yeah, it really does. And it's a huge difference. Uh, so who, who gets off, you know, who, who's not getting signed up? Well, it's probably younger voters, uh, because if you're, you know, kind of one people who are new to the state, who have just moved in here. And what we saw was that uh, between uh, November and January, of 2020, 2021, about a quarter of a million people got signed up to vote. And these were disproportionately young and minorities. And uh, you can look at that and say, you know, that maybe is the reason we have two Democratic senators right now. So, yeah, Jim's right. We don't know whether this is uh, you know, just someone messing up or whether it was intentional, but it's certainly going to be spun by Democrats as having been intentional. 
Rick? I'm going to put the hay down so the goats can get it. I don't believe in conspiracy. I believe in politics. And I can tell you in my lifetime, there is no such thing when it comes to voting registration as coincidence, accident, incompetence. This was a calculated decision. They know exactly what they were doing. And if you look at the context of the last two years, it fits perfectly. They got caught. And like Chuck just said, look at who it impacts. Young voters and new voters coming in from out of state. Oh, my goodness. Guess what? Those are two really weak areas for Republicans. Wow. How lucky they are to get that kind of break. <laughs> Andre. <laughs> I love Rick's cynicism, um, but and I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I've done, I've done reason, it too long. The reason why like this has peace is that we know that there are fundamental philosophical divergences in terms of how Democrats and Republicans view voting. I mean, we've asked this question before in surveys. Democrats tend to think of this as a right, which means that they want to make sure that everybody has access to it and that it is as easy as possible for people to be able to register and cast their ballots. And Republicans framing it as responsibility think you need to put a little bit more work into it. And they're certainly not going to um, make it easier for people who they think are disinclined to support them uh, from being able to have an easy run at being able to uh, to cast a ballot, especially now that we know how effective this is at getting new people. I mean, the funny thing is, is that registration and turnout are two different things. It's the first step. You still have to mobilize people. So a lot of these people who could have passively registered to vote, they weren't necessarily guaranteed to show up to vote unless campaigns, Democrats, Republicans, nonpartisan folks actually go and ask those folks to turn out to vote. So, uh, right. Uh, so by, you know, but by cutting people off at the pass, you might prevent people from being able to um, be, have a say in the process. I, what I can imagine Republicans will say is, is that if this adversely affects people, it adversely affects people at the primary stage. Right. So this isn't necessarily a general election uh, issue. But the challenge that I, I think we're going to have here is how do we reach those voters, uh, those potential voters who uh, got their new driver's license during this period mm-hmm. where the opt in um, wasn't, um, you know, uh, the opt out wasn't in effect. And, you know, are these people now going to be able to kind of, you know, uh, be able to register and to have their say um, in the vote? But. You know, we wouldn't expect a conspiracy or we wouldn't think political calculation unless we had seen it happen before. And I think this really goes to show what people are talking about when they talk about spatially neutral ways that have disproportionate effects on other people and also ways that bureaucracies can be leveraged to do harm against people and why these things are not totally innocent just because it looks like some clerk was doing it behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, Jim, there is an irony here, of course, uh, in that it was Brian Kemp, a secretary of state, who instituted automatic voter registration. I think Sam Mullins was attorney general at the time, our friend and, and pan- a frequent panelist on this show. Um, and, and of course, the, the voter roll swelled enormously because of that. Then, historically, we move forward. Kemp's running for election the first time. He's accused by uh, Democrats of voter suppression because there's a huge purge of voter registration lists. And now here he is running for re-election. And there are questions as to whether this is an effort to somehow uh, nullify what he created as Secretary of State in the first place. In a way, it does under, you know, uh, Kemp's defense during those years, during the during that last campaign, uh, when it came to uh, uh, Abrams's accusations of of voter suppression was he could point to the the Georgia's automatic registration uh, and say, I did that. Uh, This this kind of this does kind of sully it. It, uh, uh, and what's more, the purges that he, the purges of voter systems, of voter lists that he did, uh, they were driven in part by discrepancies between voter registration lists and driver's license addresses. Right, right. And and, and, and so so that that is undercut too. All right. Um, thank you for that conversation. With the couple minutes we have here and with the expertise on this panel, I don't want to let one last issue go without uh, discussion. Um, uh, Chuck, let me start with you on this. 
Uh, Politico yesterday started publishing its forecasts for the 2022 election. I frankly don't understand. Maybe you and Andra, who are experts on this stuff, uh, know the methodology they're using. But let me just throw out what they've said about, first, about Georgia. They call the uh, Senate race here a toss-up between Warnock and possibly uh, Herschel Walker. Um, They... You know, obviously, they say that Warnock has a slight advantage because he's an incumbent, um, but they do think it's a toss-up. And I guess so So do most prognosticators at this point, Chuck. But then to add to this, um, at the same time, uh, Steve Shepard, who does this uh, uh, for, the, for Politico, he shows the Senate leaning Republican, the House likely Republican. Governor's races are going to be, um, uh, are, are not going to change the uh, different the the uh, differentiation between Republican and Democrat. So just take all that on. Start with the fact that it is a toss up in in the Senate race here, right, Chuck? Well, it really is. Yeah, you know, one mm-hmm. of the things I like to look at is how do people vote in down ticket contests where they don't know much about the candidate. There's no advertising. So public service commission is the thing that you look at. <laughs> and what you see if you look at that for the last several rounds is that Republicans are right at 50%. Democrats are right at 48%. And that other 2% goes to the to the uh, libertarian candidates. So, yeah, we are very much a toss-up state. Uh, Warnock is an incumbent. That probably gives him a little bit of a boost. He's going to have that eye beside his name. Uh, and I think the consensus is that based upon the campaign he ran two years ago, he may run the best campaign of all again this year. So, yeah, oh. that may help him overcome that slight disadvantage that he has just in terms of basic party support. Andra? I, to add to that, I, I expect that there's going to be party line voting in the state. Um, and so because there's going to be party line voting, turnout matters. And so I'm going to be paying attention to mobilization and, and, and the ground game here. If there's one thing that I could just like quibble about in terms of uh, the rubric that Politico puts out, they have one measure that's called candidate quality and it's electability. And so what it's basically looking at is what's the correlation between the candidates vote in the state and then what the top ticket. So basically, like, you know, what did the presidential vote look like in the last election? Okay, that's not how political scientists define quality, Um, but uh, the electability thing, I think, does kind of matter here. And I think that that party line voting does matter. And because we saw something that was really close in 2020, we expect that there's going to be a kind of within five at least race kind of this time around. And so it's just going to be a question of uh, which side gets their people to show up to the polls. Um, you know, in November that I think is going to determine the outcome of not just this race, but also the gubernatorial race as well. What a great conversation with all of you again today. My thanks to Andre Gillespie, Chuck Bullock, Rick Dent, and Jim Galloway. We're completely out of time for today's show. We'll be back again on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.